Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Art Wright, and I'm the pastor here at Williamsburg Baptist Church. And we're so so grateful that you're listening and tuning into our podcast. Uh, this was uh, a wonderful weekend in our congregation. Uh, as we move into October, we hosted a Rise Against Hunger event this past Saturday, and about 60 of us gathered, all ages really, um, gathered in the social hall and packed about 10,000 meals that will be shipped uh, to where they're most needed in the world. And we had a lot of fun connecting and working together and serving in that way. It really was a meaningful experience. And we'll pop some pics on social media to share uh, sometime real soon. Uh, We also celebrated World Communion Sunday on October 1st, yesterday, and uh, had a really meaningful time in worship. And then we gathered outside um, for a potluck um, picnic, a tailgate cookout. I don't know. It was all of those things somehow at the same time, and we had a really good time. It was just a really meaningful um, weekend together as a church, and the theme was food. (laughs) Go figure, we're Baptists. The, our, um, our guru for live streaming has been out for the last two weeks, and we miss them dearly, and um, we struggled the last two weeks to get our live stream running. We have audio from the sermon yesterday. It's not great, so I'll just uh, give you a heads up. It's a little bit quieter than usual, and the audio was picking up from the, the phone we use for video rather than from the pulpit mic, so you hear a lot more from the congregation uh, than from the pulpit. Um, but we still want to share it. I, th- I think it was a good time and a meaningful sermon and conversation together. So hope hope it's meaningful to you this week. And feel free to reach out uh, as usual if um, you want to connect in any way, pastor at williamsburgbaptist.com. Uh, once again, we really are glad you're listening. God bless. <laughs>
Cheer up, you'll never forget that word again. They never seem to like that very much. My kids hate it when I say things like that too. But this morning I'm remembering a time when I was a student in seminary, and it was my second year that I finally mustered up the courage to take Old Testament one. I knocked out Greek and New Testament and Hebrew in my first year, but the Old Testament faculty members at my school had a reputation for being intimidating. In my experience, don't tell any of my Old Testament friends, okay? In my experience, Old Testament professors tend to look like old, grizzled archaeologists. And that's because some of them actually are old, grizzled archaeologists. Thank you for backing me up on this hiding. Long, gray beards, elbow patches. They prefer whiskey and scotch and cigars. <laughs> old school in just about every sense of the word. And everyone at the seminary recommended taking New Testament first because there was something called grace evidently <laughs> that class. <laughs> and so I was really nervous from the get-go to take these Old Testament or Hebrew Bible classes. And I remember studying so hard for that first midterm. And students over the years had compiled this um, compendium of uh, it's a compendium of notes, a study guide of sorts, uh, passed down from generation to generation. Heidi, we probably shared those same notes, even though we were separated by a few years at Union. And there were detailed bullet points of things like Amalek and Baal Peor and Bilhah and Zilpah. And for the life of me, I can't tell you what any of those things mean at this point in time. And so I remember getting this midterm exam, and the first thing that we all did was we like scanned down the list of words to see if we'd recognize anything familiar. And mercifully, there were a few words like Hagar. But I saw these other two names, Shifra and Pua. And might as well have said, no clue. <laughs> have any of y'all heard those names before this morning? I bet a couple of you have, but yeah, just our seminarians in the world. <laughs> yeah, and on the midterm, that's right. We probably have the same midterm. I can't remember what my grade was on that midterm, but I looked back at my transcript and I did eat out of B in that course, thankfully. And Shifra and Pua have struck, stuck with me ever since then in the same way that I'll never forget the word that I misspelled in fifth grade spelling bee. Shifra and Pua, two midwives who defy the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the world. And, one of the, and Shifra and Pua are the only two named characters in the book of Exodus until Moses himself is named. Maybe we should start including them in our Sunday school curriculum. But let's back up for just a minute. We've spent the last three weeks in Genesis to kick off the cycle of the narrative lectionary. God created the world. God called Sarah and Abraham to extend God's blessing throughout the entire world through their descendants so that all people might flourish, not just the Hebrew or Jewish people. Sarah gives birth to Isaac, Mr. Laughter, remember, for those of you who were here two weeks ago? And then last week, we met one of Isaac's sons, Jacob, as he was wrestling with God. 
Jacob, with his two wives and his two concubines, becomes the father to at least 12 sons and probably just as many daughters. And we'll have to do a sermon series on biblical marriage one of these days. <laughs> Eventually, all of Jacob's children whom we know as the Hebrew people, or the Israelites, or the Jewish people, they all end up in Egypt, starting with Joseph. You may remember that story because it's an amazing one, well worth reading. It's really Genesis chapters 37 to 50. Uh, J Joseph has dreams that infuriate his brothers. There's an amazing technical dream code, you may recall. And Joseph ends up enslaved in Egypt, only to become elevated as the right-hand man of the Pharaoh. And so by the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph and his family are held in very high regard in Egypt. But then we turn the page to Exodus, the very next book of the Hebrew Scriptures, and a lot has changed. Generations pass. This family grows and multiplies, just like God has promised. But there's a new Pharaoh in town, and he doesn't know his history. He doesn't remember that Joseph helped save the Egyptian people when famine struck the land. He doesn't realize that the Egyptians and Hebrews have been able to flourish because of the high degree of mutuality and trust they've enjoyed between their two people groups. The new Pharaoh only sees the descendants of Jacob as a threat. Verse 8, now a new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He said to his people, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we. Come on, let's be smart or shrewd and deal with them. Otherwise, they will only grow in number. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from our land. Notice what isn't there yet, though. There's no conflict. The Hebrew people seem to be living in harmony with the Egyptians in a way that's sustainable and life-giving to all of them. But the Pharaoh fixates on the fact that there are more Hebrews than Egyptians, and he starts asking, what if? What if they grow in number? What if they turn against us? What if they ally with our military opponents? What if they fight against us, and what if they leave our land? What will become of us? Just to be clear, there's no any indication in the text that any of this will come to, come to pass. In fact, quite the opposite. So here's what I think is happening. At best, Pharaoh is falling prey to fear, to humanity's primitive instinct to fear those we view as other. At worst, however, I think Pharaoh may be a conniving politician who's stoking mistrust and leveraging fear among the Egyptians to get them to turn against the Israelites. And so what happens next? Pharaoh sets taskmasters over the Hebrew people who oppress them through forced labor. And in doing so, he seems to inadvertently bring about the very thing that he feared. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And as the Hebrew people multiply in number even more, the Egyptians grow in their mistrust and dread of his people living in their land. And then Pharaoh takes the awful step of enslaving the Israelites forcing them to make bricks and tend the fields, and this goes on for years. Fast forward sometime to Exodus chapter 3. We didn't quite get to it in the reading today, but the text said that God hears the cries of God's people, 
And God partners with Moses and Aaron and Miriam and others to lead the Hebrew people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God shows them a way out, an ek hadas. And that exodus journey carries us all the way through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. God appears on a mountain and gives the Israelites laws and commandments. We'll get to that next week. And when they don't have enough, God will provide daily bread to sustain them on their journey. But none of that happens if not for two midwives, Shifra and Puah. There's no Moses, no crossing of the Red Sea, no Ten Commandments without Shifra and Puah. So let's linger with them for just a few moments longer. When the Hebrews are enslaved, the Pharaoh calls the midwives and tells them, when you deliver a child for the Hebrew women, if it's a girl, let them live. If it's a boy, kill it. And in the ancient world, lineage, you may know, was traced through the male side. And so, and, and on a long enough timeline, this practice would eventually eradicate the Hebrew people. But Shifra and Pua secretly defy him. The text says that they do this because they respect God, and they let the babies live, and then they lie and tell Pharaoh the Hebrew people give birth so fast the midwives never make it in time. I'm so glad you laughed at that in the text. It is a funny moment. Pharaoh escalates his aggression by calling all Egyptians to throw any male babies in the river. It's horrible to say the least. But as much as Pharaoh seems to fear men, it turns out it's the women who are doing everything they can to oppose him. Did you notice that? the mother of Moses, who hides her baby for months after his birth, the daughter of Pharaoh, who adopts Moses as her son, knowing full well that he's one of the Hebrews, and then Moses' sister, who cleverly works the system so that Moses' own mother can nurse him while he's young. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes people from both sides of the aisle to make things work to make salvation and liberation possible, to make it possible for God's dream of blessing to continue through the entire world. Shifra and Pua, for their part, are identified in the text as the midwives of the Hebrews, but it's unclear whether they themselves are actually Hebrews or Egyptians. I went down a rabbit hole this week, and a whole host of interpreters think they're actually Egyptian midwives to the Hebrew people who refused to give in to the fear-mongering of Pharaoh, who refused to give in to the us-versus-them mentality he's trying to propagate. And I will spare you all my footnotes about their nationality, but I find myself convinced because Pharaoh would never have asked two Hebrew women to kill Hebrew babies. Folks, it didn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. The Hebrew people themselves will fall into the trap of us versus them thinking the moment they get to the promised land following the exodus. And they begin warring against the people already living there. We Christians throughout history have been quick to fall in the trap of us versus them thinking too of inciting fear of the other. Many of our politicians on both sides of the aisle continue to stoke the fires of fear this day because if they can get us to fear the other, they can win our votes. Just as it was with Pharaoh, fear continues to be a powerful motivating tool in our own time. 
But if we can step back from the precipice, take a breath, take a moment to realize that us versus them is almost always an artificial distinction. We are so quick to draw invisible lines around countries and races and religions and carve up our cities along socioeconomic lines. We do have very real differences in this world and they're important. But at the end of the day, aren't we somehow all in this together? We find ourselves orbiting our star at the center of the solar system on a glorified space rock, and it turns out we're all going to either live together or die alone. Remember in the beginning, God created us all. Remember God's promise to Abraham and Sarah just two weeks ago that God wants to bless all people through them, not just Israelites. Not just Egyptians, not just Republicans, or Democrats, or Americans, or Canadians, or white, or black, or brown, or gay, or straight, or bi. Not even just Baptists, or Catholics, or Methodists, or Buddhists, or agnostics. There is no us versus them. When we have made it about us versus them, it only ever seems to me that it ends badly. I found myself thinking this past week about Desmond Tutu and the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa in the late 90s. I can't help but think that they, maybe more than any other people, seem to have realized that if we're going to create a world where all people can flourish, it must be and it can only ever be us and them. Y'all, believe it or not, I know if you look around the room, it might be hard to believe, but we didn't all vote the same way in 2020. I'd be shocked if we all vote the same way in 2024. And yet in just a few minutes, we're gonna gather around a table together and eat one loaf and share one cup, symbolically at least, as we remember our unity through Christ. We're gonna share communion with Christians all over the world that we don't agree with who belong to different denominations and have different nationalities and theologies. But if we can sit at this table together and share this loaf, maybe we'll remember that we can also sit down at a table together and share our values and hopes and fears and dreams for the world and for our children and for our churches. And then maybe we can begin to share creative ideas about how not... <laughs> Maybe we can begin to share creative ideas about how not only Egyptians and Israelites can coexist and flourish together, but how Red America and Blue America can coexist, and how Russia and Ukraine can find common ground for peace and fairness, and how Protestants and Catholics can begin to heal old wounds, and how Christians and Muslims and Jews in the Holy Land can at last break bread and share hummus together and how reconciliation can happen in families and between partners and siblings. Today's Exodus passage doesn't elevate the Israelites at the expense of the Egyptians. It uplifts those who choose to nurture life rather than propagate fear. So hear me say this as pastor. Let's resist the us versus them language, especially in this year ahead as we move into election season, right? It's a year long, at least a year long. 
Just don't use us versus them language. Don't share it on social media. Resist those who stoke fear of the other. We as people of faith are called to be peacemakers and unifying voices in this world. And you'll hear me say this later, but the world is too small now for anything but love. And when we forget, Shifra and Pua will show us the way. Thanks be to midterm exams. <laughs> thanks be to old grizzled archaeologists. And thanks be to God.